Well, good theology makes a difference in a song. And how it speaks to our hearts and how it moves our affections. And if your affections were not moved today, you're in trouble. As the old preacher said, if that didn't cause your clapper to move on your clock, then your clock is broken. Right? All right, Acts 18. Let's begin reading Acts 18, and let's read down through verse 11. Your outline has three points in it. Don't uh, worry about it today. We're not going to be able to hit all three of them. But the first one, we will. And I hope the Lord will speak to us as the gospel of Jesus Christ heads into Los Angeles, California. It's true. Uh, Corinth, most scholars will tell you, would be the present day Los Angeles. So we've gone from... Uh, Athens, with all the philosophies and uh, the intelligentsia of the day and how the gospel penetrated it. But today we're going to go to Sin City, and Paul is going to do that, equipped with the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to change lives. Right? Acts chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And why did they come? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. We've talked about this historical note a few times that occurred around 49 AD. And uh, he sent them away. We'll talk about that later. And he went to see them, Paul. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. One translation it's leather makers. It could be one or the other. No question that they probably made tents, but the, the root of it more is a leather worker. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. There's a change there. Testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments, said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. And this verse will blow your mind. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And now let me read you a verse of scripture found in 1 Corinthians to help set our context. You notice that terminology of fear and trembling. Well, listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. Here's what Paul said to the Corinthian church when he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. 
I hope you realize that we are living in a world of moral, moral relativism and is spreading like an infectious disease. We live in a world that really is amoral. Immorality means that there are laws and we're breaking them. It's immoral, immorality. Amoral means there are no laws, right? And are no rules or no morality, period. And we're living in a world of moral relativism. What does that mean? That all truth is relative. All morals are relative. It's up to the person. So there's no standard of right and wrong. There's even talk of this ideological war that's going on in America. It's being waged. I believe that. I, I believe that is a reality in the world that we live in right now. So moral relativism is gaining more and more acceptance in our world. And we are treated as believers with less and less tolerance today. The elimination of prayer in the Bible, we look back on that from our state schools. Folks, that was just the beginning. You think back of the day when, in the day when that was removed from school. That was just the beginning. We now know that Christians themselves are often targeted in the public square for speaking anything to do with truth at all. Nativity scenes... Ten Commandments, crosses have been systematically and progressively removed from all, pretty much all public places. And so when you say today, millennials, when, when, let's say, what are millennials? Born after 1980. That's the millennials. You know, you've heard baby busters and boomers and all these terminologies used for generations. When we say the term millennials... We have to remember today that when you say God to a millennial, it doesn't mean necessarily the God of our Bible. Uh, there was a day when if you said that in school, people understood that we're talking about the creator God of the Bible that Christians worship. But that's not the case anymore. When you say millennials and you just use the term God, their response is going to be, which God are you talking about? The Muslim God? The Hindu God, the Buddhist concept of God, or even a New Age God. Now, all of these, of course, in my notes say G small. You do know that, right? Because none of them are God, period. There's but one, our God. So we need to be clear when we talk in our world about the fact that the name of our God is Jesus Christ. Uh, I didn't hear enough amens. If you don't identify our God as Jesus Christ, then you don't know who your God is. And Jesus Christ the Lord is God. So it's one thing just to think you're doing well by saying God. But folks, you understand something. To a millennial, it does not mean what you think it means or what you believe that it means to them. Now, we need to be clear that the name of our God is the Lord Jesus Christ. A Bible story used to mean historia. That's the, that's the Latin term for story. It's, it's a history lesson. But now story means fiction. And that's exactly the way that millennials see that. You're just going to read me a story, and in their mind it means nothing but fiction. Listen to these recent uncovered truths. Now, I'm building up to the sermon, okay? That's why we're going to divide it into three parts. There's a reason I'm telling you this. Because Paul went into a highly secularized city that, that made him fearful, made him tremble, that he had to go into this kind of sin-ridden culture. And yet he goes into that culture and he delivers the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm trying to build up to tell you what we're facing in our world today. Millennials do go to church. 
Not a lot of them. But millennials, those who were born after 1980, do frequent churches. Now get this. These millennials were interviewed, tons of them, and all these millennials go to church. When asked, do you consider yourself born again? Now these are millennials that go to church. 40% said no. Okay? Second question, do you believe if you're a good person, you will go to heaven? 65% of these church-going millennials said outright yes. They were asked, should gay couples be allowed to marry? 40% said outright yes, and 10% said we don't know. Which means that 50% of millennials that regularly attend church in our day do not oppose gay marriage. These statistics reveal a tragic understanding of what's happening in our generation and what we're going to face in the future. That's the reality right now. And that's going to have and has already have tragic consequences to the world and the church if we are ever if we've ever needed what's called a gospel reset it is right now today we need a gospel reset we need to preach the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as given in the word of God and Paul reminds us of this notice that Paul will say We're turning away. I'm turning away. Your blood be on your own heads. He turns away from the Jewish people. And he says forthrightly, I'm going to the Gentiles. Listen to this. You ought to know this verse. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Notice, for everyone who... To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we're seeing it lived out that... He goes first to the synagogues and to the Jews, and he says this to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, we believe that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the person of Jesus Christ alone, according to what the Scripture says to us, so that we can get a righteousness that, not, that is not of us. It's the righteousness of God given to us. Because of what Jesus Christ the King did on Calvary for us. And when you believe and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, then you are saved by grace through faith. And notice, it is the ones who believe. Now let me show you something interesting. We're we're dealing with millennials, right? Chapter 2 of John's Gospel. Listen to the word. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name... When they saw the signs that he was doing. We're in John chapter 2 verse 23. Now verse 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people. And indeed. And needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Folks. You understand that that passage says that many believed in his name. Because of the works that he did. But Jesus Christ did not commit himself to them. Y'all do realize that, right? He says it clearly. Why? Because he knows fully what's in man's heart. So we're not talking about just a belief of sensationalism about things Christ can do. We're talking about belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what he did for us on the cross of Calvary. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. 
to those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then as you go down through, Nicodemus is going to say in chapter 3, Lord, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things and signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born, say it, folks, born again. Look, how many? 50% of millennials say they're not born again. This is a generation we're living in, folks. There may be some kind of belief in coming to church, but they don't know Jesus. They haven't been born again. Born is ganao, taken from the word you might get generation or regeneration. Ganao is a little word. To be rebirthed from above is again. In other words, the power that births you is from above. It's God that does this in you. It is born from above. God does this in the hearts of people. You have no pulse. You are dead in trespasses and sin. Amen? But God rebirths you, makes you anew. Titus 3.5. Not by works of... Come on, folks. This is the... Greatest verse in the Bible that speaks of the doctrine of regeneration. You need to know this verse. Let me teach it to you by a song. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Regeneration. Same Greek word as rebirth. Born again, ganao, in a different tense in the verb, same exact root word, regeneration. Isn't this awesome? You're not saved by works of righteousness. Folks, listen to me, folks. You'll never be saved by what you can offer God. You can never offer God enough. And if you're sitting here today thinking that you offered God enough in order for Him to love you, then you're missing salvation. You're missing it. 100%. You're missing it. Regeneration. Means, uh, listen, he tells you salvation all the way through. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to, whoo, aren't you thankful for mercy tree? Aren't you thankful that God did for you what you could not do for yourself? And he did not give you what you deserved, but he gave you mercy. By mercy. And then through the washing of regeneration, washing entails something. It's the removal of filth, but it's also the addition of something. So he removed your filth. And then he made you anew. That's the gospel. Through faith, believing in Jesus Christ, he removes the filth. Now, this is not baptism. We're not talking about outwardly. He removes the filth on the inside and pronounces you innocent before his Father. And then he makes you new. Gives you new life. If any man be in, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away and behold, all things become new. This is the gospel that Paul takes to Corinth. It is a power of God unto salvation to those who believe. And let you hear your pastor one time unequivocally clear. Not from other people, but from your pastor. God can save anybody, anywhere, anytime. Anybody can be saved anytime they want to if they believe. But you can't be saved if you don't believe. Amen? Do we have that clear? All right, I feel better. All right? Okay, you heard it from your pastor. <sighs> All right, here's the deal. He's going to a 
Greek culture, just like what we're facing today. He's in Corinth. He's in a Greek culture. And this culture breaks his heart. I think Paul was more comfortable in Athens. But when he gets to Corinth, and he walks by the synagogues, and he walks by the temple, and he sees prostitution, and he sees the heinousness of sin, he, he's trembling, and he's fearful. And he, he probably wonders, can the gospel make a difference? You know he has to be thinking that sometimes. I mean, he's been beaten, he's been treated, he's been mistreated so many times, and now God Almighty has to send some assistance into the life of Paul. And that's what you kind of see happening in this text of Scripture. I don't want to spend a lot of time on Corinth because I did that longer introduction, but it was only 40 miles from Athens. It had two significant ports. Not only was things ported into Corinth from east and west, but also north and south. So Paul didn't have to go to Corinth, but brother, when he went there, it was a strategic move by God. Because then, now you've got two ports coming into a secularized city, and the gospel is coming in and out all the time, north, south, east, west. And incredibly, the gospel spreads out of Corinth, this terribly sinful city. And you'll find out that when Paul writes them, they're pretty bad people. I've joked with y'all, when I start feeling bad about you, I just read the book of Corinthians, and I feel better about you guys, right? I mean, the amazing amount of things the church is going through. And, and my goodness, we think, well, look what they came out of. They came out of this civilization that, you know, whereas Athens may have been more the commercial part at that time here, this, this city took over in the commercial and political realm. At this particular time, it was the epicenter of the Roman Empire. So, estimates are that there are 200,000 people living in Corinth. Uh, that's a pretty big city even in our day, isn't it? And that many people live there. Here's another thing. They were very wealthy. They made a lot of money. They had a lot of money. And here Paul is taking the gospel. Extra biblical Greek writers remind us that if someone was said to be Corinthianized, this meant that they had gone over to Corinth and had been sexually immoral with a prostitute. And this was the lingo of the day. A Corinthianized man or woman had gone down to Corinth and had been sexually immoral. Daryl Bach, a New Testament scholar, says that Corinth was the Las Vegas of the times. When I thought about that, I thought, well, on the Corinthian cable network, they probably would have said, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Okay, that's what we're dealing with. All right, point number one. We all, this morning, need to engage in the work of the ministry. That's what you see in verses 1 through 5. You see Aquila and Priscilla engaging in the work of the ministry. You see the Apostle Paul engaging in the work of the ministry. Don't tell me you're saved and you're just going to sit on your blessed assurance until Jesus comes back. Don't tell me that you're saved when you're not engaged in the work of the ministry. If you're saved, it will be accompanied by fruit. Right? You're not just saved by faith. The righteous live by faith. We're saved by faith, by grace through faith, but we actually live out that faith as well. So Paul moves from the philosophical capital, and he lands in Sin City, and Paul chooses to go to Corinth, and he plants this church. And again, what a strategic beachhead for the gospel. Set up right there in Sin City in Corinth, 
And he doesn't go in with an attitude that, man, I just can't wait to tackle Corinth. He doesn't come in with a superhero uh, attitude. He doesn't come in and say, man, I am the church planter par excellence. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I'm even a writer led by the Holy Spirit to write down the Word of God. But he doesn't come to this place like that. We know that Paul most likely wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And of course, out of that visit to Corinth, he's going to write two more canonical books in your Bible called 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So here's what we know. This was a notoriously immoral, wicked city. And Paul is going to go into this city and he's going to be highly uncomfortable. He's going to be fearful and tremble because of what he's doing. He's surrounded by persistent evil. But Paul will tell the Corinthians that the great solution to human pride and sexual perversion is the cross work of Jesus Christ. I would know nothing among you other than what's the answer to our sexual perversion in our world and moral relativism? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. What is the answer to the intelligentsia of the day and intellectuals of the day? Well, it's the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. I mean, does all your pride go away when you think about Jesus on the cross bearing your sin, paying your debt that you owed? I'm telling you folks, all boastings out the window when you look at the cross. When you come to understand the cross of Jesus, pride goes away. Uh, all the intellectual understanding you may ever have in your life just falls to the wayside when you think about the cross. When you think about Jesus. And Paul's going to go in with that. And here's the glory of it. Paul is weary. He's trembling. He's fearful. And God sends him some support in a married couple named Aquila and Priscilla. That's just, no, Aquila and Priscilla. All right, right? He sends this married couple to him. And he finds them and they're, oh, of all things, they're leather workers just like Paul. And they welcome Paul into their home. And I can't tell you how many times I've been strengthened and encouraged by married couples that love Jesus. I remember Jackie and Larry Donovan. I'd never been on a foreign mission trip. They challenged me. They encouraged me. And then they took me with them. Thank the Lord. For Larry and Jackie Donovan. Thank the Lord for married couples who live for the Lord. But here's Aquila and Priscilla. We know that they've been exiled. Why? Well, we got some extra biblical teaching on that. You know, we love to read the Bible and it's absolutely truth. But you know what the extra biblical stuff says about that? It says that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome, Rome because of the identity of one name, Christus. Isn't that awesome? That's in your history books, and that's outside the Bible. And it says in the history books that what happened was the Jews were fighting over the identity of Jesus. Is that still happening today? If you don't get that question right, though, you're in trouble. Who is he? Peter got it right, didn't he? Not close to being right. Peter got it exactly right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But this is what we know is happening. And they're going to share together in this leather work. And here's what I want to say to you. And then I'm going to finish with some application from Priscilla and Aquila and Paul. Okay? Here, Paul goes into this city, and he's alone. Now, think about going to Sin City, and you're by yourself. And then God gives him 
a supporting cast of Aquila and Priscilla. And while Paul is doing this and working, he's also preaching the gospel when he had a chance. So he's supporting himself with an income, doing something else, and he's pouring his life into the gospel. But here comes Silas and Timothy and others down from Macedonia. And then notice that word, occupied. Paul moves from having to support himself to the place of being totally occupied with the preaching of the word. I wonder why that could take place. Because they brought him a love gift. They brought him money from Macedonia, of which Paul will say that the church of Macedonia, although they were very poor, gave bountifully to the work of the ministry. So more than likely, what happens is they bring an honorarium, some money. Remember, Paul would not ask the Corinthians for money. He would not ask them to support him at all. He would tell later that you ought to support those who labor in the Word. That's true, but he wouldn't take any. And then once he's freed up, and he's working with his hands, folks, Hard work, making tents, working with leather. And when he could, he preached the gospel. But when they came down from Macedonia, he gave himself totally to the preaching of the word, to say to Jews and Gentiles, he is the Christ. Now, let's talk about Aquila and Priscilla for a moment, and we'll be done. Okay? You know, you can read on in the word of God, and you'll find out that they're mentioned four different times, other than this one, that we, we, we run into Aquila and Priscilla. Here's what I would say about them, and I hope this helps you. It appears that the pair enjoyed a dynamic marriage. Did you know that your marriage is a testimony to a lost world? I heard one amen from a sister over here. Any men? Y'all believe that? Uh, you know, you either, you either push out a false gospel to the world by your marriage, or you push out the true gospel by the way you are in your marriage. Husband and wife. And here's a couple. Every time they're mentioned, they're mentioned together. Don't you love that? All five times, we'll see at the end of this chapter that they pull Apollos off to the side and fill in some theological gaps in Apollos' life. Isn't that awesome? They run into Apollos, and he's going to show up toward the end of the chapter, and he starts preaching, and we're like, wait a minute, you can't preach. Only Paul can preach, right? But Apollos is a believer. And later into Corinthians, he's going to say, uh, don't run after Apollos or Paul. You need to run after Jesus. Right? Apollos can water. Paul can plant. Whatever in whatever order. But only God can bring the increase. But here we're going to be introduced to Apollos. But isn't it awesome that he must have got up and preached his first sermon. sermon, And he had some theological gaps in his sermon. They're like, whoa, that's not right. Or he didn't say it all. And they go back to him. Godly couple. Together. Go back to this preacher boy. And say, you know what? That was a great sermon, but you need to clean some stuff up. And here's, here is this kind of man and woman, this kind of dynamic marriage that they have together. And Paul could never talk about them without mentioning them together. And at the end of Romans, he's going to say, I love Aquila and Priscilla because they risked their necks for me. Isn't that awesome? And I don't know what happened and how, he did, how they did that. But Paul knew he wouldn't be alive that day had it not been for them risking their lives for him. So dynamic marriage. Here's the second thing. It seems that Priscilla had a remarkable influence in the family unit and in the church. Of the six times this couple is mentioned, six in all, Priscilla is mentioned first in four occasions. So here we have Aquila and Priscilla. Four of those six times it's going to say Priscilla and Aquila. And I think her ministry stood out to other believers in the church. 
Don't, don't draw a conclusion that Aquila was insignificant. Okay? This is not to speculate that Priscilla dominated the marriage. Right? It's not what we're saying. What is instead highly possible is that Priscilla was a lot like Lydia. And she was a woman of great prominence. And she was a huge important female figure in the early church. And this is how, this gives us an example of how godly ladies have played a significant role in the history of the church. She's proof that the church's mission in Acts wasn't to be a male-dominated movement. Can I get one amen? No matter what the world says about the church and about the Bible, here's here's an instance where here's a woman who loved Jesus, understood her role in her marriage to Aquila, and yet was a prominent part of the church, and God used her mightily for the cause of Christ. Here's the third thing. This couple was mobile. They were mobile. Aquila migrated to Italy from Pontus on the southern side of the Black Sea. When forced to leave Rome, I know it was forced, but they moved and ended up in Corinth. They will later move to Ephesus with Paul, where they're going to meet in their house and have church. They will eventually return to Rome in Romans chapter 16, 3 through 4. And finally, in 2 Timothy 4, 19, they're in Ephesus. I mean, here is a mobile husband and wife. And you may say, well, they were leather makers and they could go everywhere they wanted to. Yes. But what was the real cause of their moving? Jesus Christ. When they left Rome, it was because they identified with Jesus Christ and were, you know, were run out of town because of Him. So I think I, I want to suggest to you that this couple's movements suggest that they don't think of any one spot as being at home in the world. You know, we, we, we like to draw a circle around Missouri, in particular Ozark, and we say, God, you have to work within my circle. You may be very well disobeying God by drawing your circle. That's not the way that these people did it. I am so thankful that Natalie and I didn't draw a circle around the south and not come here. And I left a whole lot there. But the reason I came is because of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me and told me, you know what? Maybe you need to get out of the south and go somewhere else. It's because I don't draw circles around a map and say, I can only go here. I go where God sends me. And you should too. So, well, preacher, you trying to get rid of church members? No, I'm trying to get you to obey Jesus. We'll send you anywhere you want to go for the cause of Christ. Amen? Amen. So here is Aquila and Priscilla, and it's an amazing thing. They were married, yet they were open to the will of God, right? This young couple right here. You get married. Joel, Lindsay, and you're open to the will of God. It may not be to preach the gospel as a clergyman from a pulpit, but if you love Jesus and you're saved and you get married, you get married for the primary purpose of serving Jesus. And so here's what they're doing. They're doing it. They're following Jesus from city to city. Their experiences are a reminder that while the Lord may sometimes keep a couple in a certain period throughout the duration of their marriage, He also takes us sometimes in the complexity of all of life and plants us exactly where he would have us to be. If you treasure Jesus enough, you'll go wherever Jesus leads you. Say it. Amen. Amen. Life is good, but it's not always easy when it's spent in service to the Lord. Here's the fourth thing. They had a Christ-centered passion. Paul called them co-workers in Christ that risked their own necks for him. This is not a cheap compliment, folks. Just think about that phrase by phrase. Here's a couple that risked their necks for him. 
They did what they did because of their love for the Lord. You might work in the military today. You might work with medicine. You may work in education. You may be a tech industry worker. Whatever you do, this couple's a model for you. Right? Whatever you do, they worked in Christ Jesus. Don't you love that verse? Colossians 3.23. And whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Work. And here's what they're doing. They're working for the cause of Christ. Whether they were leather working and sharing Jesus, they were, every time you read about them, they're inviting somebody into their house. They were working for Jesus, being hospitable. And that's the fifth thing. The two were hospitable. Whenever Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned in the scripture, they're opening up their homes for others. They instructed Apollos in their home. They let the church meet in their home. Folks, we've got to fight about, we got to fight against the different things that we hold so dear in, our, in the U.S. of A that keep us from being hospitable. I mean, this is a good point of application today, isn't it not? Are you really hospitable to people? I mean, when's the last time me or you or whoever else invited someone who was lost into your home? When's the last time we did this? Now, they're welcoming believers, and, and you ought to do just that as well. But here they are. They're doing it. We have an internal problem of isolation in our country. We go home, and we shut the garage door, and we shut the world out. Go ahead and say amen. We do. We shut the world out. We have isolation problems. We have an addiction to comfort. We're selfish. Um, there's the pride of wanting recognition when we do things. And all of this keeps us from being hospitable like we should. Do I, do I have to remind you that you were invited and graciously given salvation and brought into the Father's home? Amen. As a matter of fact, Jesus is preparing that place for you in glory. Amen. Right? He's doing that. So we ought to all be hospitable. And what can we say about Paul? That's Priscilla and Aquila. And what can we say about Paul? I mean, the man is always on the go. He's always working. And every chance he gets, he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, when he's doing it, he's also making tents. I mean, he's like the Energizer Bunny. Is he not? I mean, the guy just never slows down. And as you read the word, you're thinking... Son, how in the world could he keep up with this? Now, we're never told. We know that Paul is supported, self-supported many times. He talks about this. But we never know anything about a trade until you get to Acts 18.3. You know what? Rabbis work with their hands. And Paul knew this. Remember, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. and, 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 And he worked with his hands, not just his mind. He was able to do whatever he needed to do to support himself. And otherwise, in other words, he had a secular vocation... But his primary goal was to make Jesus Christ known. So while in his letters to the Corinthians, Paul would encourage them to compensate pastors. He refused to take that support. He didn't want to have any obstacle in the way of preaching the Lord Jesus Christ as a source of salvation. And that's given in 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 14, if you'd like to look it up. So throughout his week, Paul made tents, witnessed, according to this text. On the Sabbath, he preached in the synagogue. And after Silas and Timothy arrived, what did he do? When he had proper, when he had enough funds, he gave himself totally to the preaching of the word. And I want you to understand that Paul wasn't effective merely because he was a gifted teacher. He was effective because he worked hard. Y'all guys know anything about hard work? Do y'all agree with that? You know, we, we think sometimes around the church that if we just show up, everything's going to get done. 
or, or in your Christian walk with the Lord, you think it's just going to come by osmosis, I guess. You stick your Bible under your pillow and lay down at night, and it's all going to go right up into your mind, right? Without working hard. And here, Paul is working hard. He's a gift, probably the greatest, the most gifted teacher that ever lived. And yet the man had an incredible work ethic. And I dare you, read about all the great missionaries and preachers of, our, of, our, of the years gone by. And every one of them will have this common denominator. They worked hard. They worked hard. Amen, sister. Right? Here's what Paul told the Romans. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. So many of us have read those biographies. And here's the deal. They weren't lazy. Right? They were not lazy. We must not think that lounging at the pool or sleeping in all day or vacationing every day of your life is what life is all about. Folks, is this making any sense? They were engaged in the work of the ministry. Aquila and Priscilla and Paul. They were not lazy. They were at work. We've got to start just like Paul did, with an understanding of who Christ is, and get on mission like Paul was. This is not just for me and the staff of our church. It's for every member of the church. Why? Because the Bible says for guys like me to train you, to equip you, to do the work. You didn't know that verse was in there, did you? (laughs) Ephesians 4.11. Teach them to do the work of the ministry. So we've got to start. To get on mission like Paul did. All Christians could consider. We ought to all consider how we can leverage our secular job to do the most that we can for the cause of Christ. Is that fair? It's not? It is fair too. If you're a born again believer and your whole life is consumed with Jesus Christ, I know you can get fired. I'm not telling you to go get fired. But I am telling you to leverage your job and your vocation to do as much as you can for the kingdom of Jesus Christ throughout your days. Leverage that job for Jesus. Every one of us should do that. I do that in our staff because, you know, these guys... All right, never mind. (laughs) And I want to say this. Working your secular job for the cause of Christ is just as important as your pastor preaching this sermon on Sunday. It's just as important. You have to see it that way because that's exactly the way God intends for you to see it. Both positions can be used with gifts and opportunities to build Christ's kingdom. So the Bible is filled with mentions of godly saints who had various vocations. And your job gives you an opportunity, puts you in a sphere of influence like I would never have. And it gives you the opportunity to love a neighbor, to display Christ's honoring integrity, and to speak a good word for Jesus, and to make the gospel known to the ends of the world. Aren't you glad I didn't preach point number two and three? I'll do that next week, all right? God is good. Here's the invitation. If you don't know Jesus, and you have a desire in your heart to come to Christ, that didn't happen by happenstance. That's because the Lord of eternity is drawing your heart to Him. Jesus said, of the ones the Father hath given me, all will come to me. Y'all know who said that? It's in red letters. In John 6. And Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. So if the Lord is drawing you today, believe and come to Jesus. Amen? Amen. How about Christians? Let's let's leverage those vocations. Uh, Whatever you do in life, let's work hard. Young people, oh, 
I can promise you your mom and dad will never look at you and say, y'all not work so hard. I mean, come on. I mean, people are born today with their elbows glued to their hips and they're like this. Whatever happened to hard work? There's nothing wrong with it. As a matter of fact, the harder you work, usually the less trouble you'll get into. Did my grandma tell me that? I don't know. But here's the deal. I know it's true. There's it's, it's nothing wrong with working hard. Let's have a church that says the Protestant work ethic means something. Adam tilled the garden before the fall. God put him in the garden to work it before the fall. And after the fall, there's thorns and thistles. you got to live with it. We got them. It's hard. But telling you folks, let's have a good work ethic. Not just in the world, but how about our church? I mean, we need to step up, folks. You're gifted in some kind of way if you're saved. you got to step up and do the work of the ministry. Amen. Father, help us. God, help me. Lord, give us the passion for you above all things. Lord, we need your Spirit. It's your Holy Spirit that indwells us is the greatest teacher. And we're asking Him to teach us. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to live. God, help us. Convict us of our sin. God, help us to preach a gospel that is Bible-centered. Not the works of man, but the work of God to save us. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming down from heaven to save sinners like me. Sinners like the ones in this congregation. To save us. God, thank you for it. Paul went into Corinth with that mindset. God, you are mighty to save. You can save anybody, anywhere, anytime. Even in Corinth. Even in L.A. Anywhere in the world. Power of the gospel unto salvation. To those who believe. God, help us take that gospel to the ends of the earth. Lord, speak to our hearts in the invitation. And may we let you do work in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.